series of messages through the book of Samuel. So if you want to turn there to chapter 8, we took a two-week hiatus um, to celebrate um, the death and resurrection of Jesus, and we're back into Samuel. For those of you who uh, might be new, um, we're, just, we're studying this to know God, to see Jesus, and to know how to live by faith. And um, while you're turning there, I just, I feel compelled to reflect on something that Rob said um, for the sake of understanding how powerful and um, world-altering the gospel is. Um, his comments about India and the caste system and, and people who have a, like a, a place in society that they don't believe can be changed. Um, we have a tendency as Christians to think that the gospel of Jesus uh, just changes souls or hearts. Um, which it does. It changes them for eternity. But it does more than that. Um, the gospel of Jesus Christ changes cultures, and it changes structures, social structures. It changes society. You, you can imagine for a moment uh, a, a, a beggar in, in India whose religion tells him that he can't change his status. And, and that's the crippling thing about false religion, and there are false, false religions, um, is that it... it, it it, it, it traps people and enslaves people. Well, imagine a Christian coming along and saying to this beggar, you know what? You were created in the image of God. And Jesus Christ has purchased people from every tribe, tongue, and nation, from every class, from rich and poor alike, and he has made us all who trust in him children of the king. That, that revolutionizes everything. Um, all of a sudden, a, a, a beggar in a particular chain to, a, to a, a strata of society is set free to know that he is loved by God on an equal footing with everybody else. And it changes society. It just doesn't change the heart or the soul. It changes society. And what many of uh, the people in our country um, who don't believe, don't understand, and many believers too, is that much of the good things that we have in our culture are a residual effect of the gospel here. We have handicapped parking places for those who are, who, who are disabled, caring for those who are, um, who are weak in some way, um, because of a Judeo-Christian ethic of caring for others as we would like them to care for us. That's the gospel. And, um, and that's why I think it's, a, it's magnificent. It's the mo most life-altering, heart-altering, um, culturally altering, uh, socially altering thing that there is, and why we believe so passionately in its proclamation in the church and outside the church. I just, I just think about what's happening over there and how you walk onto that campus, and I've walked onto a different campus there in India, and, and just to see that it's like a different society. But it's a society that lives and breathes Jesus, and it changes um, human dignity and respect and how we treat each other. And I'm just uh, blown away by, by the power of the gospel to change everything. Um, with that little mini-sermon said, I'm going to go ahead and pray. And, um, and then start. Father, I just thank you for your goodness. I thank you for your word. I thank you that, um, that you're, you're, you're the one who has given us, uh, by your grace, the resources, not only to experience change in our own lives, in our own families, in our own church, but even in our own community. And I, I just pray that you would re, um, reignite within us um, faith in the transforming power of the gospel here in Fairfield, that really things can change. You have changed entire nations as a result of, of the gospel taking hold. And so we just pray that you would grant us uh, faith in that. I pray that you'd speak to us this morning through your word and, and um, that some might be encouraged, convicted, um, but transformed nonetheless to be more, um, more trusting and, and um, more uh, surrendered to you as, as we seek to live in, 
in loving and glad submission to your gospel. And I just thank you again, G in Jesus' name I pray, amen. Well, my wife Deanna will tell you that, that I'm, for the most part, a fairly stereotypical male. Um, no one likes to be stereotyped, including myself, but stereotypes are there for a reason, because it's generally true. Uh, I remember we were going on a date in the mid-90s, and, and we had tickets to Joseph um, the, in the amazing Technicolor Dreamcoat, and it starred Donnie Osmond. Remember that? It went around from, from town to town. Anyway, we got tickets, and it was downtown Chicago. We got in our Toyota Camry, and we headed off. And, and I had looked at the map before we left, and I thought I knew how to get there. You know this is where, where this is going. And we got off the freeway, and you get into the downtown streets of, of Chicago, and you forget which way is north, south, east, and west, because you lose the sun, you lose everything. And I made a wrong turn, and we pretty much ended up lost. I right, left, backtracked, circled around. And eventually, my wife said, what most wives say after waiting 15 minutes to find the place that should have taken two, and uh, she said, well, do you think we should stop and ask for directions? No man wants to hear that. And I, I, I said to her something like this. I said, no, I can find it, you know. And um, within a couple of minutes, I, I, I had to eat humble pie. We pulled over and in front of a store, I think, I think it was a store, and she walked in and, and asked for directions. We finally make it, made it to the, to the theater, and we made it on time. Um, now, I know some of you ladies think that that's, well, let me back up and say, I'm not the only male to do that. Um, and some of you ladies might think that we're just, it's stupidity. Like maybe our brains have been rotted by testosterone, so we just can't make decisions. Uh, it's not stupidity. It's just pure arrogance is what it is, which, which produces stupidity. But it's, it's, it's not an IQ problem. It's a, it's a pride problem, and that's kind of a, a male thing. We just we like to know we can get there. I can handle this. Any situation, there's kind of a God complex, and it also happens when we're assembling things, that we, um, we oftentimes bypass the instructions on how to put stuff together. Most of the furniture in my house came in a box with all the little screws and nuts and bolts and uh, plastic things and all kinds of stuff. And, and most of the time, I think to myself, only somebody who didn't graduate the third grade would need to read those and put this stuff together. Case in point, I bought a trampoline for my daughter. And a um, trampoline with 96 springs around the outside. And at first, it's okay, just going spring to spring. But by the time you get to the end, man, you're just like, oh, pulling the strings like that. Got all done, felt good about myself. Took me about three hours. And then I realized you know, I was putting a net on. And I realized the net actually has to go inside of each of those springs. So I had to go back, and I had to undo all 96 springs and stick the skirt back in and pull all the way around. And I thought to myself, what an idiot. What an idiot. Yeah, maybe I didn't graduate third grade. Again, it wasn't a problem of, of being stupid. It's a problem of just being proud and think that I can do it. And that is kind of in the male spirit to fix things, you know. I can, I can do this. I can handle this. And I'm ashamed to say that, but I am getting better. I think, Deanna, you'd tell, say that I, I am transforming. As the gospel transforms the world, it'll transform this fix-it mentality. Now, you ladies, you do the same thing, but in different ways. Um, I know a number of you who have confessed that you have tried to fix the spiritual life of your husband or your kid. And most of the time, when you think you can fix it yourself, I can do this, it ends up blowing up in your face. Well, that's, a, that, that's not a male problem, that whole fix-it mentality. It's not a male problem. It's not a female problem. It is a human problem. And, and when you come to this chapter in 1 Samuel, you find a people who are trying to fix something apart from the Lord. Um, that is, they, they find themselves in a, in a crisis. As the people of Israel, so far we've, 
followed, the, basically speaking, the ministry of Samuel. And this is a pivotal chapter, chapter 8, which pivots us towards the first king. Um, so it establishes kind of why the kingship happens. Anyway, um, but there's a crisis, and the crisis is one of, of leadership. And uh, in a typical fashion of, 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 of fallen human spirit, they decide that they are going to come up with a solution and fix it without the Lord. Now here's the, here's the, here's the crisis. I said it's a leadership crisis in the people of Israel. This is how it opens up. When Samuel became old, that means a period of time has passed since chapter 7. Chapter 7 kind of ends with everything, uh, with the peace and Israel got its, its cities back from the Philistines. And, and there was this long season of, of peace and prosperity. But now he's old, so a period of time has, has, has taken a place between chapter 7 and 8. When Samuel became old, he made his sons judges over Israel. The name of his firstborn son was Joel, and the name of his second, Abijah, and they were judges in Beersheba. Yet his sons did not walk in the ways, uh, in his ways, but turned aside after gain. They took bribes and perverted justice. So here's the leadership issue, is that Samuel's getting old. They know he's going to die, and his sons are buffoons. That is, they're crooked and they're shady. That doesn't tell us why, nor does it blame Samuel for his sons. Just a little, maybe a little uh, suggestion that just because you're a, a godly parent doesn't always mean that your kids are going to go right. In any respect, there's no commentary on it. Just that they were bad kids. So um, Samuel's approaching death, and his kids are bad. Who's going to lead us next? When Samuel was leading us, things were good. Things were at peace. Um, but the future doesn't look good. So they come up with a plan, and here's the plan. Then all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah and said to him, Behold, you are old. <laughs> Just like, that would not fly today. Um, behold, you are old, and your sons do not walk in your ways. Uh, now appoint for us a king uh, to judge us like all the nations. But the thing displeased Samuel when they said, Give us a king to judge us. And Samuel prayed to the Lord, and the Lord said to Samuel, uh, Obey the voice of, all, of the people in all that they say to you. For they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. According to all the deeds that they had done from the day I brought them up out of Egypt, even to this day, forsaking me and serving other gods, so they are also doing to you. Now then, obey their voice. Only you shall solemnly warn them and show them the ways of the king who shall reign over them. They have this crisis, leadership crisis. We would have one too. It's like evil people on the scene and the good people are dying off. What, what are we going to do? Um, and their solution is, we need a king. They kind of look around at the nations. They figure, okay, they have kings and uh, a, a monarchical form of government, and it seems to be working and effective, so let's, let's change. That's what we want. And that's, that's their plan, is to install a king. That's what they want. Um, now, you've got to take time here to uh, ask the question, uh, what's wrong with the request for a king? Because it's obvious the Lord is displeased about the request. We want a king like all the nations. Well, for sake of argument, let me say that the, it's not the idea of a king that displeases the Lord. Because you read much earlier in the Bible, Genesis 17, uh, verse 6 and 16, for example, uh, Abraham is promised that kings will come from his line. So God promises that, that a king is going to come. There's going to be some form of monarchy. Uh, that, that promise is echoed also to, let's see, Jacob in chapter 35, verse 11. The kings are going to come from his line. And you might recall, there's this, uh, there's this 
uh, long blessing at the end of Genesis chapter 49 where Jacob blesses all of his sons. And you get to Judah, and the promise to Judah is that the scepter will not depart from the line of Judah until the ruler comes. Scepter, royal, that implies kingship. So the problem isn't with kingship. God intended on putting a king on the throne. So it's not what they're asking for that's the issue with the exception of the, like all the nations. So what's wrong with the request? And I think um, it comes down to the way that they ask it and more importantly why they ask it, the motive of their hearts. And their request, their blunder here to ask for a king um, which displeases the Lord I think has lessons to teach us about what not to do. That is a faithless response in times of crisis. We all experience crisis in our lives, family crisis and personal crisis, marriage crises, or we experience a crisis in our country, economic or otherwise. And the question is, how can we live in faith and not act or respond faithlessly like they did? So they, res- they responded faithlessly, and as I've kind of meditated on this, this chapter, I've come up with a couple of things that I see in their response that are faithless. One is uh, what we might call godless presumption. Uh, Godless presumption. Now, um, what I mean by presumption is they presume to know what to do, how to fix things. You'll notice if you contrast chapter 7, remember there was also a national crisis and the Philistines were coming, and how did the people respond? Well, they responded by coming to Samuel saying, plead to the Lord on all by our behalf so that he might deliver us and save us. That is, they're seeking the face of God in the middle of their crisis. And that's hauntingly absent in this chapter. They have a crisis, leadership vacuum. What do they do? Well, they don't do what the older generation did in chapter 7. They don't seek the face of the Lord. They come to a plan, a presupposed plan as to how to fix it without ever giving, giving, getting direction or inquiring, Lord, what would you have us do? And I think that in contrast is intended. That is, they were presumptuous. Even in the way it's stated, they don't come to Samuel asking please. They know what they want. They think they know how to fix it, and they're demanding a king. Get that demanding a king. They said, behold, you are old and your sons do not walk in the ways. Now appoint for us a king to judge us like all the nations. And there is no please in that. Not a request, it's a demand, as verse 19 um, affirms. When after a stern warning as to what a king like all the nations is going to look like, they say, no, but there will be a king over us. That's presumption, to think you know how to fix the crisis. So instead of turning their face and seeking the Lord, they first try and fix it themselves, presuming that they can fix it. That's leaning on human flesh, human understanding, human thoughts, and human forms of fixing things. Now, do we need to fix things? In one sense, we do. But the proper response isn't a godless presumption that I know what to do. The first response is, Lord, what do you want us to do? Is to simply and humbly inquire, Lord, we know that you're the one who saves us and provides prosperity and peace, and and, um, whatever method you decide, we, we want your blessing. Now, we have the same tendency. As I said, these are, these are, this faithless response is something that we're tempted by. Um, so when something goes wrong, 
typically our first response is how. How am I going to fix it? So, you know, a couple screws come loose on your teenage kid or your junior high kid, and immediately you're thinking, how am I going to fix? So you go and you research, you buy books on how to fix your junior high kid. And it tells you, take a screwdriver, metaphorically speaking, stick it into their head and just turn it half a turn and your kid will be fine. I'm, I'm being facetious, but, but th that's what we're looking for. We're looking for the fix. And we go immediately to fix it without first looking. And, and the truly believing response is to recognize that, you know, without the Lord's blessing, without his face shining upon us, I can stick a screwdriver wherever I want it, and it's not going to work. Um, I have appreciated over the years seeing this, not this lived out, but the opposite. That is, the first response when it comes to ministry or life or family or marriage, the first response is, Lord, I, I'm looking to you, and, and, and I'm, I'm looking for your blessing. I'm looking for your leadership. I'm looking for your guidance in my life. And only after I know what you want me to do, then I'll go and do the research and, and, and in faith, fix it. Uh, I have appreciated over the years watching, like the women's ministry is a perfect example of this. I didn't share this first service. I'll share it now real quick. Is that I've appreciated over the years that before they do anything, they get on their knees and seek the face of the Lord. So if someone comes and says, hey, we want to do this. It's pretty nifty and, and awesome. Before they ever say, hey, let's do that. It's really nifty and awesome. They're like, we're going to seek the face of God about this. And that's the way it should be. That's the way they should have done it. That's the faith response in crisis, and really in all of life. It's like, you know, before we try and draft up a vision for the church or my life or my family, I'm going to get on my knees, I'm going to pray, Lord, what's your vision for my life or my church? And not make one up because I need to fix something. That's, 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 that's a faithless response is the godless presumption. Um, but to turn it on a positive, the right response is before you ever fix, look. Before you ever fix, focus your eyes on, on the Lord and know that he's the one that blessing you need. I tell you what, you can try all the fixing you want, but if the Lord's not in it, nothing's going to happen. Um, but there's a second uh, faithless response here, and um, it's really the heart of the passage, um, and that is the idolatrous substitution. Now, we profess in here to believe in someone we do not see, we cannot touch, we cannot feel, um, we cannot manage, and we certainly can't control. And that kind of faith in something we cannot see, cannot touch, not, it, who's not tangible, who we cannot manage, cannot control, that kind of faith, uh, apart from grace, is impossible, and it's very difficult. Just, I believe, I trust in what I cannot see. That's a simple truth about faith. It is hard, and apart from grace, it's impossible to just trust someone you can't see. It's much easier. It's much easier, and it's highly um, subversive, to, to transfer trust from one you can't see, can't touch, can't manage, can't control, to something you can see, can't, can touch, can um, at some level manage and control, like a human king. And that's essentially what they've done in asking for a king, that the heart of why it's wrong is they are substituting a, a, a form of government and a king in place of the Lord. That is, as I flip through here, that's clear in the passage, it's the center of it. It says, and the Lord said to Samuel, obey the voice of the people. And I'll skip to the, the italicized part where it says, but they have rejected me from being king over them. In substituting something for God, you reject the Lord. He says that near the end, too, of verse 8, where he talks about bringing them up, up from Egypt, and he says, 
to this day, forsaking me and serving other gods. It's not just gods like Baal or Zeus or Apollo who can be other gods, but here it can be a king or a form of government too, to trust in it. And in substituting something else for the Lord and trusting that somehow it's going to um, provide security for you or it's going to, um, it's going to uh, create prosperity for you, um, you are transferring trust from the God you can't see to something you can see, namely a leader and a system of government, um, and in doing so, you reject the Lord. That's, that's what it says right there. And the people know it. Down in verse 19, when they say, no, but there shall be a king over us, that we may also be like the nations, um, and, that a, and that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. They want someone tangible that will fight the battles. You know, they want a um, Schwarzkopf. They want, they want a personality. They want, they want somebody that they can, at some level, manage and control that they know are going to fight the battles and preserve the peace. They want security, and who doesn't? A lot of people in here want security in these economic up and down times. And security in your job, security in your, your health. That's why we have so many different forms of insurance, because we want to feel secure. And if at any moment we ultimately look to anything other than the Lord for our ultimate security, we have, in a sense, substituting did something in place of him and therefore rejected him. And you might think, well, I, I, don't, I don't do that. I'll tell you, it's so, it's so um, uh, unconscious sometimes, it's, it's, it's difficult to detect. But you can oftentimes detect it by looking at how anxious you get over things, who you blame, how cynical or frustrated you get. I mean, I'd be willing to set, say that there are probably many Christians who believe that the well-being of, their, of Christianity um, and of, of your relationship with the Lord is in some way, I'm going to back that up and say, um, that the well-being of Christianity is somehow tied to who wins the next election, who sits on the bench of the Supreme Court, uh, or whether or not we recover and uphold a view of the Constitution as it was originally intended, um, or that the future of our well-being is somehow in the hands of, of, a, of a representative form of government or a democratic process, all of which have their place and their merit in some way, but if we ever base our hope or sense of deliverance on any of those things, did you, uh, on any of those things, we have substituted. I think there's a lot of people who actually depend or think that somehow democracy will save the world. It won't. As much merit as there may be in the process and the representation and so forth, there's there's only one person who can deliver. And at any moment, if we depend upon those things, we have substituted. And we have ceased to trust the only one who really matters. And only when our eyes are fixed on him and we trust him and he's our first response, you know, then it works itself out. Then we can go and vote and we can do all the things we should do, but we do so in confidence that ultimately it's not, not a personality that's going to save us. It's, it's the Lord. That's it. And what he gives and what he takes away, and we're okay. We don't have to be anxious about it. We don't have to run around like a chicken with our head cut off and going, oh, my gosh, the sky is falling. That's faithless response to idolatrous substitution. We don't want to give in to that. Um, and many of us do. And we end up trusting in other things. And, and this passage says don't, don't do that. I think, did I lose place? Um, and the last one here is a, also you see in the text is 
um, faithless response number three, that is spiritual petrification. You're like, petrify, what? Um, you know, it's a petrify. Like, you go to a petrified forest, you know, there's trees, trees that were once um, soft that have become hard, like stone, petrified, to become stone, um, hard, impervious. And you find that the Lord gives a stern warning about what this kingship is going to mean for them, and they turn and say no. That is, they hear the word of the Lord, and, and, and most of the passage, most of the chapter is taken up with this warning, and the people still say no. They harden their heart to the word of the Lord. It has been petrified, especially after this stern warning. Listen, listen to this. There's a, I'm not going to read the whole thing. I'm just going to, um, I have it listed out here for you. Uh, according to the key phrase, he will take. This is what a king, like all the other nations, will be like in quality. Uh, these will be the ways of the king who will reign over you. He will take your sons and appoint them to his chariots. Verse 13, he will take your daughters to be perfumers and cooks. 14, he will take the best of your fields and vineyards. 15, he will take a tenth of your grain. 16, he will take your male servants and female servants. 17, he will take a tenth of your flocks. And it ends with the punchline, and you will be his slaves. Now, if someone gave you this warning saying, hey, the system of government you're asking for, like all the other nations, they're going to take your sons and daughters. I, I, I would have hoped, I would have said, well, stop right there. But no one's taking my son or daughter because the idea is that, that the king will conscript them. That's without my permission, he will take, or without anybody's permission, he will take whatever he needs or wants from the people. And in the end, they will become slaves. And after hearing all of this, he will take, he will take, he will take. The people still say, no, but we want our king. That is, they, they harden their hearts again to the word of the Lord. And that's, that's a, a, a dead earnest warning to every person. We, we listen to the word on on Sunday morning, we read it during the week, hopefully. You go to Bible study and hear it. Some of you listen to it on your MP3 player, your iPad, or your iPod. And uh, we have the Word of God all around us. And yet the real question is, are our hearts soft? And in trust, submissive to what God is saying, to really consider His words? Or do we petrify ourselves? I think... One of the biggest problems in petrified heart in our culture, Christian culture, is that people tend to receive the parts of the Bible that go with their life and then harden their hearts to the parts that don't. Um, and when we harden our hearts to the parts of the Bible that we don't necessarily like, in the end we will find ourselves enslaved to something. Because all of the Lord's instructions to us come from a loving heart. He wants what's best for us, and so he gives us, he, he wants his people to live in freedom. He doesn't want them to live in slavery, and so he says, this is what the king's going to be like. I love you, I want you to live in freedom. But the people say, no, we don't think it works that way. We presume to know better, and um, we're, we want a king. And in the end, what they lose in getting a king, what they lose in getting security is they lose their freedom and they become slaves. Which really kind of raises an important question for us. Do, do I humbly come before the word of the Lord and do I, do I really believe what he says about marriage? You know, therefore what God has separated, let no man separate. 
and there are qualifications that would be needed, which I don't have time for. Do we really believe what he, what he says about forgiveness? Um, do we really believe what he teaches about giving? Do we really believe what he teaches about gossip or unwholesome words? And that's maintaining a soft heart before the word of the Lord. And when there is a soft heart that trusts the word of the Lord, is willing to follow the word of the Lord in trust, it leads not to slavery, but to freedom. The commands of the Lord were never intended to enslave. They were intended to free, to free us. That's why we follow it in trust. The only obedience that the Lord accepts from us is obedience that comes because we trust him, that he is good and has our good um, in mind. So here you have kind of a, a lesson on how not to respond in crisis. Don't presume without getting on your knees and looking up to the Lord saying, all right, Lord, I got the situation and, and I know that you're the one who is the master of it and I, I just come to you with it. Um, and not to, to substitute any other method or person in the process, but just to recognize he's the only one that can make a difference. And then to resist the temptation to, to harden your heart against the instructions of the Lord as it relates to different things. Um, that's how to, I think, respond in crisis with, a, with faith. And I would be, again, remiss if I did not make one final comment. That is, it's more than worth noting that the king that the Lord finds here says that he will take, he will take, he will take, he will take is completely opposite to the king that the Lord wanted for his people and gave to his people. A king, a fallen, broken king, a fallen, broken leader, takes, takes, takes. But the king that the Lord installs is a king who gives, 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 who takes upon himself the sins of his people and provides atonement on a cross, he gives who freely gives forgiveness to all who trust him, he gives. Who gives us his own Holy Spirit, he gives. Who gives us promises that tells us that we have a, a new creation waiting us and the promise of resurrection because he gives. He will wipe away every tear on our face because he gives and never takes. That's Jesus. And he's the kind of king worthy of all of our love and all of our loyalty and allegiance and affection and service. That's the kind of king that the Lord has given to us in Christ. He is not only God's king, he is the God king in the very heart of God's reign. And I can think of no better person worth worshiping and serving as that kind of a leader. And that's, that's who God has given to us. A king who is not a take, take, taker, but a king who gives gives, gives to all who trust in him. And I hope, I hope we don't presume to know more than Jesus who sits at the right hand. And I hope that we will not substitute anybody but King Jesus who's at God's right hand. And I hope that we will not harden our hearts to the precious words of Jesus that he has given to us not to enslave but to free because he gives, he gives, and he gives. Will you spend a, just a moment just either worshiping the Lord because that's who he is or maybe you have substituted something for him and just worship, confess, um, 
but commune with the Lord in this time before we close in worship.